Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word, you would help us to understand what it says and to live lives that are honoring to you through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I bring greetings from the great nation of Colombia, Braley's adopted homeland, by way of marriage. We had two excellent workshops on Psalms of Lament. Um, they were very excited to be participating in that. If you would like to follow along and didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, in the Pew Bibles you can find in the chairs in front of you, you can find it on page 559, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We'll be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. I don't know about you, but I hate growing, going grocery shopping. I hate it more than almost anything. What I do hate more than that is going to the mall, especially during the holiday season. But I hate going grocery shopping. And that's ironic because I love to cook. Why do I hate going to the grocery store so much? Because, simply put, I will be confronted with an overwhelming variety of everything. Just take canned tomatoes, whole, chunked, diced, sauce, paste, stewed. And that just doesn't even begin to cover the tip of the canned tomato iceberg. I could go on listing flavors, reduced sodium, organic, fire roasted all day long. In 2004, Barry Schwartz, a psychologist, termed and brought about the term paradox of choice. I could get into a long definition of what the paradox of choice is, but I think I can simplify it like this. The paradox of choice is what happens to most of us when we go to the grocery store to buy canned tomatoes. You stand in front of the aisle. You knew it was on the list just to get canned tomatoes. You probably even know what you're going to make with the canned tomatoes. But upon arriving at the aisle of canned tomatoes, you are confronted with the paradox of choice. You, you might fret. You might bring out two cans. You might call somebody. You would probably worry that you are making the wrong decision about canned tomatoes. Ironically, what we know to be true, and I can verify this from personal experience, is that if you have fewer choices, the choices themselves are actually much easier to make. So if you just go to the grocery store and there is one thing on the counter called canned tomatoes, you'll just take it and put it into your basket and move along. Now the paradox of choice does not just give us a desire to at times sing the Psalms of Lament while at the grocery store. It affects really all of our lives. Clothing choices, 
job decisions and who to date or who to marry. We live in an age of ever-increasing options. And options can be a good thing. But like all good things, there can be way too much of a good thing. Simply put, what are you and I to do about the crippling nature of being alive? It is that interesting question that we are often afraid to ask. The writer of Ecclesiastes who calls himself the preacher will give us some guidance on this morning. So let's read it. Short text, Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if the tree falls to the south or to the north... In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title for my sermon this morning is Just Do Something. Just Do Something. I have three points. Uh, this has only happened to me a few times in life, but all th- each point builds on itself. I was... Uh, rather excited to have this. So if you missed the first one, just wait to the second one because I'm going to build on it. Here's the three points. Number one, do stuff. Number two, do stuff because there are some things that are inevitable. Number three, do stuff because there are some things that are inevitable and you don't know much. I think that's what the text is driving at this morning. Here's the main idea I would like to leave you with. Very simply put, Amidst the uncertainties of life, we must do the best we can with what we have been given. Once again, amidst the uncertainties of life, we must do the best we can with what we have been given. So, point number one, do stuff. This would be verses one and two. Chapter 10 found the preacher giving a series of reflections on the need to pursue wisdom in a world in which being foolish often seems to be the better path. It's a rather confusing section, much like our lives, direct and proverbial to the point, just kind of saying, look, there's all kinds of times at which it looks like it's better to be a fool, but pursue wisdom, even if it doesn't make sense all the time. Now, here he gives two interrelated pieces of advice as well as two supporting reasons for living in a particular way. Now, what the preacher is writing is as clear as day. What the preacher means is very much up for debate. There's two options here. I think both of them are equally valid. One of them 
says that what the preacher is talking about is investment, and the other one is to, uh, the other opinion is that the preacher is talking about generosity. Now, if you go with the investment stream, that the bread upon the waters is the idea of shipping your grain overseas. Mediterranean Ocean was right smack dab in the middle of the kind of biblical world in which this book was written. The Mediterranean Sea gave you access to all kinds of other nations, states, people, groups, stuff like that. But the problem was that the Mediterranean is a very violent place when it comes to weather. It's kind of dangerous and risky to do. You see, if you send your grain across the waters, then there is the possibility of good reward as it says here in the second part of verse 1, after many days. It's why you should send your grain across the water. The second verse, give a portion to seven or to eight, seems to be a piece of advice to invest in a diversified way. Any of you who have ever gone to an investment consultant will tell you, no, I don't care how much you like Jolly Ranchers. You cannot put all your money in the company that owns Jolly Ranchers. That is ridiculous. When you're seven, you're like, whatever. Everybody loves Jolly Ranchers, except for the people who cut their tongues on them all the time. Right? Can I get a witness? Anybody do that when you're a kid? That was the word. Thank you. Yes, I see those hands. Um, that is the worst feeling on earth. Diversify your investment. Seven or eight, the idea is just building on top of each other. Why? Simply put, you don't know what is going to fail to be. You don't know when disaster is going to happen on the earth. Therefore, if one investment fails, well, you got other ones to go around. There is a running theme of what you don't know in this section. Now, if you go down the generosity path, then this bread upon the waters is a metaphor for giving. Just put it out there. Be a very generous kind of person. Why? Because, well, one day you'll reap a reward after some kind after many days. The idea of giving it to seven or to eight is to spread the wealth around. Why would you do that? Well, because you don't know when you're going to need help. And therefore, if you're a generous person that just generally helps everybody, then when it's your turn to need some help, there's a better chance that people are going to help you. Now, usually I don't bring up two different ways of understanding the text, but again, the reason I do so this morning is because I think both are just absolutely valid, and I would like to think that the preacher is speaking like in a double sense of like, yeah, I mean, take it either way you want. Be generous, invest wisely. In other words, be smart with what you have been given. So far, this seems all very, very obvious. You go, Jeremy, I learned this when I was in eighth grade from that one person that came from the bank that showed me the chart that if I invested my money like seven pennies a day, that when I was 50, I would be a billionaire. Of course, I blew them off because I wanted to buy Jolly Ranchers. But now I know that that person is a genius. However, for some reason... Math, if I invest $20,000 a day, I'll still only have $10 when I'm dead. I don't know how it all works, but this is clearly obvious. What is the point? Well, friends, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. And nothing in this book is simple. 
However, the difficulty hasn't arrived yet. We get to our second point, do stuff, because there are some things that are inevitable. Verses 3 through 4. The simplicity of seemingly obvious truth rolls on in this section in some wonderfully poetic fashion. Notice verse 3. Two parallels communicating the same thing. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Cause, effect. Very simple. There are observable, inevitable things that happen in nature. What is the point of such obvious reflection? Well, verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, just as inevitable as it is that if the rain clouds fill with rain, they will dump it on the earth, so too, if you don't plant anything in the ground, ain't nothing going to grow. Imagine coming over to my house, for example. And upon arriving at my house, you find me standing outside, staring at the clouds. And you go, hey, Jeremy, how's it going? And you go, oh, I'm just fine. I just really wish I had some tomatoes. And you look in my hands, and I'm holding a packet of tomato seeds. And you go, well... So you want tomatoes, and you have tomato seeds. Why don't you just plant the tomatoes? You go, oh, I just don't know if it's the right time. And then I just continue to look at the clouds, and you wander off thinking, oh, no, he's finally become what he is. He, is, he, is, he has lost it. Now, now, maybe if you come back again a couple days later, I'm doing the same thing. You might be like, man, this guy is just really trying to time it out. But if, like... Three months into the deal, you keep coming over to my house and I'm still just like staring at the clouds. You'd be like, yeah, we need to call somebody. See, you might not have any idea how gardening works, so let me simplify things very easily. You take the seed, you put it in the ground, and then magically a plant comes out and gives you the thing that that seed came from. You're welcome. That's gardening. Now, not every plant grows, as many of us know. Some of us are horrific gardeners, right? You get the little thing that comes up out of the ground, you're like, yay, and then you forget about it. You come to it, back to it like three weeks later, and it's just dead on the ground. You're like, why don't I have tomatoes? Not everything that you plant works. But unless you take that seed and put it in the ground, nothing is ever going to happen. This might make all the sense in the world to you, but I know many of us are stuck with nothing because we don't ever do anything. Do you want a new job? Well, if you want a new job, you have to start looking for one. Do you want a better marriage? Well, if you do, you have to start working on it. Do you want a baby? You figure out the riddle. 
Now, is everything you're ever going to try going to work? Of course not. The life of every human is riddled with a ridiculous amount of failure. It's the thing that we hate in our own lives and celebrate in the movies. It's the things that make for really good stories once we get past the pain of it. But the reality is, is that failure is only an option for people who ever try to do anything. Therefore, friends, fail with great courage. Because in failing, you are saying to the world, at least I'm doing something. It's not easy, but it's what must be done. However, if you just stare at the clouds all day, if you just observe the wind, well, then you got nothing to complain about. Just do something. Which leads us to the third point. Do stuff because there are some things that are inevitable and really you don't know much. And this is where we get to the tricky part of the sermon, of the text. Three times in two verses, the preacher points out that there is stuff we don't know and gives a recommendation in light of that reality. Thing we don't know, number one, this is the first part of verse five, and you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Now, if you're reading a different translation, maybe the NIV or something like that, you'll see that uh, there's some confusion about exactly whether it's like, if you don't understand like the wind, which is the same word for spirit, and there's all kinds of weird stuff going on here. I think, though, that what the author is trying to say is, you don't know how the soul gets into the body. It's, it's amazing. There's all kinds of stuff that we know about how babies get made and how babies are born. If you want to know in intricate and sometimes disturbing detail how that all happens, you can talk to Lila afterwards, who is our resident expert on baby making. And baby birthing, really the whole process of just kind of, she's got both the theoretical and the practical experience going on. She could tell you how that happens. However, with her vast amount of knowledge, she could not tell you how the soul gets into the body. Neither can anybody else. There's all kinds of things about babies being born that we know that these people had no clue about. Yet even the most simple things about children being born are beyond us. Like, here's one. Exactly what happens when that sperm enters the egg? Nobody knows. We know some things about it, but there's all kinds of weird things that happen in an instant, and we don't know why it happens. The author's point is that there are inobservable things in life that we can't possibly begin to understand that are the simplest realities of everybody's life. Friends, never stop wondering about the mystery that is life. Things are alive and continue to go on. It can get bogged down in so much scientific stuff or 
we can be so removed from it. People live, people die, people take medicine, people go to the hospital. It's just the way it goes. But the reality is, is that the fact that things continue to go on living is amazing, and you don't really know why it happens. This leads to the second thing we don't know in the second part of verse 5. So, in the same way, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Just think about that for a minute. Now, while it might be foolish, per verse 4, to do nothing more than stare at the clouds, I would recommend, particularly on a day like this that is so nice, to just get a chair or get a blanket and go outside and stare at the clouds for a while. In the second workshop location in Colombia, we're in Medellin up in the mountains. Medellin is in this deep valley, but on the mountains all the way around it are, uh, you know, like narco houses, but then also like nice Christian camps. It's a rather interesting juxtaposition. While you're up there, the climate changes very, very rapidly. And while I was reflecting on this passage every day, I would watch it go from absolutely sunny to full-on clouds and fog to with a gust of wind, all of it going away over and over again. The work of God in creation is beyond our comprehension. There's simply no way to understand everything and how it all works or how it all works together. And this seems frustrating at times, particularly to those of you who might be more kind of hard science-minded. I just want to know how it all works, and that drive is a good one in humans to a certain extent. It brings about a desire to know and then observe and upon observation come up with new things, and it's one of the reasons we have so much progress as a society today, but it's not easy. It seems frustrating that you can't put it all together. But there is real benefit in knowing that God is big and you are small. You see, because if you understood all the works of God, then he wouldn't really be all that much worthy of worship. Because he wouldn't be all that much bigger than you. The pinnacle of God's work that we will never fully understand Is something that we are in the process of celebrating this month. The month of December. The month of the birth of baby Jesus. There are so many things about God sending his own son to earth. The pinnacle of his work in creation. That I cannot begin to lay it all out this morning. But let me give a brief overview. What doesn't make a whole lot of sense is that though you and I constantly rebel against God, breaking his law, he decided while we were sinners to send his own son in order to live the life that you and I were called to live and then die. Die in your place and my place for all who would ever trust in him. In order to make those rebellious, disobedient people children of God. 
not only dying, but then rising from the dead, ascending to the Father and promising to come back another time. Friends, know this. Every time you see those little nativity scenes with like white baby Jesus, which that wasn't the way he was, but that's for another sermon. Come back in a couple weeks. Know this. Every time you see that baby, that that baby came into the world to be hung on a cross. It wasn't an accident. It was why he came. And, and maybe, just on that very brief recounting of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you begin to understand how ridiculous some of the work of God is in the world. Because here's the thing. Most of you that I know are like, ah, decent people. Some of you more decent than others. But like, I wouldn't die for you. Sorry. You know, I'll take a bullet for you. Probably not. You know, and let's be honest, you would take a bullet for me. And if you would, like, yay, but nah. Yet Jesus comes and dies for people like you. And, me. and we can get so used to it that it just becomes like, of course he did. Yeah, we'll sing a song about it and go eat lunch. Friends, the work of God in creation is beyond our comprehension. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness, peace, and assurance that we will live with God forever. Friend, do you believe that? It requires faith, that is for sure, because it doesn't make all the sense in the world. But then again, most of life doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We don't understand the simple things like how souls come into bodies. We don't understand the work of God in creation. The third thing we don't understand is in the last part of verse 6. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Simply, you don't know how everything's going to turn out. This is a theme the preacher loves coming back to time and again. Tomorrow is nothing but a figment of your imagination. Or we could bring it even like nearer to scale. Five minutes from now is a figment in your imagination. You might long for this sermon to be over. So you go into the back and eat some food at fellowship meal, right? Or pretend like you're eating the food and then just go to the dessert because it's fellowship meal and, you know, it's cheat Sunday or whatever. Just do what you want. But the reality is, is that as sure as that event after this event is going to happen, you could drop dead right now. make for an entertaining Sunday. But here's the really weird thing about the world in which we live. None of us is probably going to die. And all of us will probably go into the back. And we will probably eat fellowship meal. And we will probably enjoy it most likely to the degree that we think we are going to enjoy it. But it won't be exactly what you're thinking of right now. It never can be. Even the things that you are the most sure of in life are always just a little bit different. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's worse. But the reality is, is that you have no idea what is going to happen after this. And friends, you only ever exist in this. Lack of knowing much in life can lead to some serious paralysis in making decisions in life. Big decisions. 
small decisions. How many times have I met with people? And they say, I, I don't know what to do. There, there's so many things that I could do, and I'm just stuck here crippled doing nothing because I don't want to make the wrong decision. That doesn't mean that sitting down and talking with people over decisions is a bad idea. In fact, it is a rather wise one. But don't ever come to me or go to your friend and think that in talking with them, you will figure out exactly the right thing to do. One of the things that some of the young couples around here have come to embrace, but when I first say it, they have this look of horror on their face, is that don't worry, there are no soulmates and you always marry the wrong person. So just get used to it. Now, those of you that are married now know that I was speaking some serious truth, right? Yeah, there we go. I got one. Lila, you can deal with that afterwards. Um, it is absolutely true. I married the wrong person too, right? I'll throw myself under the bus too. Why? Because it's never exactly what you thought it was going to be. The idea that you had in your head is not the way that it ultimately turns out. You're never going to figure it all out. Talk. Pray. But at the end of the day, just think and do something. This is the advice the preacher gives to us in the first part of verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, at the evening withhold not your hand. Just get busy doing something. Why? Because you don't know how it's all going to turn out. Worrying about life won't change anything. Neither will fretting about the decisions that you're supposed to make. What does this have to do with being a Christian? Well, two things. First, very simply, all truth is God's truth. As Christians, you and I should be incredibly happy that we live in an ordered world that we don't fully understand, but that when we read very simple and obvious truths like this, we can go, oh yeah, that speaks to the reality of the world we live in. Imagine if the preacher said, as long as you stare at the clouds long enough, you'll never make a bad decision. That would be a religion that I'd just be out, I just, sorry, can't be a part of that. Or that all decisions are really no decisions because nothing exists. Okay, cool, done, not being a part of this. But this obvious truth, which is part of God's truth, should help us to kind of see like, hey, listen, we're not crazy. That's the simple truth. But here's the second one, and it's much more profound. Jesus was very, very serious about doing something. We see it revealed to us in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, which is where we're going to close, which is commonly referred to as the parable of the talents. We heard it read for us this morning. Now, when you hear talent, think about money. Don't think about your ability to do card tricks or baton twirling or about how you could do the splits 10 years ago, right? Nothing like that. The idea of talents is that it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood, each talent is 20 years worth of salary, a ridiculous amount of money. In the parable, which is designed 
to communicate to Jesus' audience what the kingdom of heaven is like in regards to how his disciples should respond and live until he returns. Jesus puts forth this landowner and three servants. Very, very simple. The landowner gives each of these servants a number of talents depending on their ability, according to the proverb, or according to the parable. To one, he gives five talents. In other words, roughly 100 years worth of salary. To the other one, he gives two talents, 40 years worth of salary. And the other one, he just gives one talent, 20 years worth of salary. And the idea is that these servants, he entrusts it to them is the word that is used in the story. He entrusts it to Here you go. Now, the one who has the five and the one that has the two go out immediately and invest and do stuff and get back the same amount. Again, take 100 years worth of salary and turn it around like that. This is in a day and age where there are no IPOs, right? There's no Bitcoin madness or anything like that. We're talking about a serious amount of intellectual firepower going on, and they're dealing, and they get double. The guy who has one talent goes and buries it in the ground, which sounds moronic and turns out to be rather stupid, but that is how money was guarded during these days rather often. Now, the landowner comes back after a time and rounds up the three who are entrusted with this incredible wealth. What is most interesting about the story is that the first two, the one with the five and the one with the two, present the landowner with the original investment and double. Here you go. And both of them hear exactly the same thing. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, we learn from the parable. And parables are general stories. You get into the details and it gets kind of confusing. The idea is that it doesn't matter if you got five or you got two. You did something with what you were given. The one-talent chump gets no such praise. Not only does he just present the one talent, he blames the master for it. He goes, here's your one talent. I didn't do anything with it. I just buried it in the ground because I knew that you were, a, you were a hard man. It's your fault I didn't do anything with it. The landowner is furious, taking away the one and casting him off into outer darkness. What's the point of the parable? It's simply a great illustration of what the preacher is commending in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. What is most important in the Christian life, in living the Christian life, in living until Jesus returns, having believed and trusted in Jesus, is that you just do something with what you have been given. With what, Jeremy? With my money, with my time, with my abilities, with my... Yes, all of it. Some of you are in the five-talent category, right? You don't have to raise your hand. It's cool. We all respect you, right? And your responsibility is to use the five talents. Some of you just got one talent, right? You know who you are. 
right? It's fine. The best part about the Christian life is that some of us are insanely gifted and some of us just keep breathing, but we all matter. And the question isn't, how many talents do I have? The question is, what are you doing with what has been given to you? And and this matters so much because we live in a day and age in which we are told, just believe in Jesus. Oh, you already did that? Cool. Then, Then just get baptized. Oh, you did that too. Okay, now just be a part of a church, which means showing up on Sunday, and then you're just gonna die. Which leads to many people entering my study again and going, why am I still alive? Oh, Well, I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that one reason is to use the gifts that God has given to you, to his glory, and to other people's good. And most of the time, it doesn't look like much. And most of the time, we look at the people who are sure have five talents, and we're looking at our one talent, and we go, oh, I wish I had five talents. I only have one talent. What should I do with the one? Use it. Because those who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian and don't do anything about it, who, who just kind of say that, are those for whom hell is reserved, according to the parable. This doesn't mean that you work your way into heaven. It means that those who follow Jesus, follow Jesus. They do something with what has been given to them. So the question, friend, is what will you do with what has been given to you? And my simple advice is this. Just do something. Because amidst the uncertainties of life, you and I must do the best we can with what we have been given. Let's pray. God, we do not understand the world that we live in. We are surrounded by so much indecision, we do not want to make the wrong move and in part that is wise, but it can lead to crippling fear. God, help us to love you and do what we will. Help us to realize that if you are truly the God who is in charge of everything, who works in creation, principally in your Son, Jesus Christ, we cannot even begin to understand that you know better than we do, that you are big and we are small. Let us, trusting in you, just do something. 
I pray for those this morning who are struggling with decisions. A decision that might be very small or very big, but regardless of the size of the decision, is overwhelming them. Pray that you would bring peace to their hearts and minds with the very simple truth that there is no way to know how the thing is going to turn out. Yes, they should pray, and yes, they should seek for advice, but then they should just make their decision and live with it. I pray for those for whom life is a crippling affair, yet do not trust in Jesus. I pray that you would help them to understand that however easily or however difficult it is for them to make decisions, They must make a decision in regards to following Jesus. I pray that you would help them to see the goodness and the glory of Jesus' work on our behalf. We long to do what we ought to do with what has been given to us. Help us to be faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.